I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Howdy, everybody. I'm John. If you don't know me, I'm the, the pastor at the porch, one of the churches today, you know, that we're gathered here today. Um, yeah, let me just open us up in prayer before we get started. Um, Lord, we're grateful to be here uh, gathered with your people, um, celebrating your birth, celebrating the incarnation. And um, we just ask that you would be here in the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to just think about this wonderful story. Help us to take it one level deeper into our hearts and help us to leave here today um, with just a greater love and dependence for you. So we lift this up in your name. Amen. So Melissa and I are super lucky. That's my wife. We're super lucky, even though I don't believe in luck. Um, you know, what with the sovereignty and all that stuff, you know. Uh, but we're pretty lucky because we live in a pretty cool apartment. And if any of you had showed up to uh, football, you would know about that. You know, it's just uh, Spencer and Caroline and Chris and I watching the Niners win, by the way. Um, but anyway, we live in a pretty cool apartment. And in our apartment, when you look out, uh, we have this big, giant window in our living room. We live at the top of Knob Hill. And the window looks at the view, this gorgeous view of downtown. And we see the, um, what is it, the Transamerica building. And it's really cool. At Christmas, the Embarcadero Towers, they light up the edges of the Embarcadero Towers. And we see the bridge and Coit Tower. We have this wonderful view. And I remember the first time I went into this apartment. So a friend of mine, uh, her grandparents were living there. And uh, I remember walking in and just being kind of awestruck. Like, whoa, look at that view. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, I was literally speechless. And now this is totally true, what I'm about to say. Uh, most of the time now, I forget about the view. I don't think about it unless I'm using it in a sermon illustration. I don't walk into my living room and uh, say, wow, look at that view. You know, we have two five-year-olds. I say, stop hitting each other. That's usually what I say when I walk into the living room, right? And I'm not usually thinking about the view. Every now and again, though, I turn the lights off, you know, Alexa, good night, and all the lights turn off, and I'm in there in the middle of the night, and I look out, and I see the view, and a little bit of that, the awe, bubbles back up, and it's very cool. But usually, as I'm going through my day-to-day -day life, it's mostly just, eh, you know, that's the window, and I'm kind of annoyed how dirty it is, if I'm being honest, when I see the window, right? I'm not really thinking about the view. Christmas, the Christmas story, I think it's kind of like my view. 
At the heart of it is this story, the birth of Jesus. Um, it's this wonderful thing. But surrounding it is all this other stuff that distracts us, right? Santa, trees, um, cinnamon buns. That's our family's tradition. Uh, presents. Amy Grant singing about Tennessee. It's not Christmas without... My Christmas tradition is playing Amy Grant until Melissa thinks about leaving me. That's usually how that goes. Just a month and a half straight. It's not Christmas without Amy. And so we do this. We have all these other things, these Christmas traditions, and we do these things year after year. And I'm afraid for a lot of us what happens is uh, Christmas becomes like the view in my apartment. It's amazing. It's this amazing thing that we've become numb to. But if we don't just focus right on the, the details of the birth of Jesus, we want to take a step back. If we do that, I think we'll have a, a, a better feel for just how un fathomably unfathomably amazing this story is right this is really cool what's going on here so what i want to do is i want to start by talking about who god is that's where we have to start when we talk about the christmas story but that can be tough because the fall in genesis 3 right the fall has radically changed who we are on the inside it broke us and it it broke us pretty good and so we don't see god with the clear vision that adam and eve did before the fall right our vision stinks and the way that a covenant relationship with God is supposed to work is he is God and we are creation. But the fall changed the way that we think that that should work. It made us look at God and go, I, here's who I think I need you to be. And you need to fit into this thing, that, into my needs. And essentially we're saying for a little, just a little bit, I need to be God and you need to not be. And so we have this, we have deep in our our fallen and our broken hearts, this powerful urge to just sort of knock that God down a few pegs. Just, you know, just, uh, just a little bit and a little bit. And we see this in just the history of the world, right? Look at all sort of ancient religions where very, the way they viewed God was very transactional. I'm going to do this for you and then you owe me. But, you know, Baal, I do this and you owe me crops. I do this and, you know, I sacrifice these guys. That's really knocking God down a couple of pegs. More modern religions do the same thing, right? We take God's character and we, we twist it. Look at Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or the American sort of <clears throat> the evangelical, what we see in a lot of evangelical world, this evangelical God. And one guy called it moral, I'm not on time to get into all this now, but moral therapeutic deism. You can Google that later. Basically, that God wants me to be good and he's like my therapist. And then other than that, he just kind of leaves me alone, Right. And he's nice, he's my friend, he wants to help me out with my problems, but that's it. Humanity has this really unique skill, this really unique talent. I don't know if it's a talent, actually, but to convince ourselves of something that's not true. To convince ourselves that it is true. We're really good at lying to ourselves. It's amazing. right? Like Everybody who is adrenaline junkie like me does this. I ride motorcycles. I've been in five motorcycle accidents. I want to get back on my motorcycle because I tell myself it's not that dangerous. I can't pick my keys up off the ground or turn and look over there right now, but it's really, right? It's not that dangerous. And I keep convinced. And the thing is, too, like, uh, usually when we have to do something scary, if you've ever done this, there's a sort of the psych yourself up to do it, right? Like last week I got a couple of tattoos, one here and one here. And uh, the whole time, the week leading up to it, I was a little nervous because I haven't had one in a while, and I was like, how bad is this going to hurt? And I just kept telling myself, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to... I knew it was going to hurt, right? I did this before. I've experienced this. It hurts, right? People who tell you that tattoos don't hurt, they're a bunch of liars, right? And so I got in there, and I was just... But I was really good at it, right? I psyched myself up, and I convinced myself it wasn't going to hurt. And then he did that first line, and I went, oh, boy, that hurts. But then I started lying to myself again. Well, it doesn't hurt that bad. 
right, and I'm just going to be tough. And there were four of us in there getting tattoos. And the guy who was tattooing me knew one of the other ladies who was getting tattooed, a middle-aged woman. She was on the other side getting tattooed. And he shouted at her, hey, Susan, how you doing over there? You know, and she says, terrible, this hurts. I don't know why we're all pretending like it doesn't, you know, and there's four of us, and we all laugh because we all were feeling the exact same thing. This is what we did. We went into there, we lied to ourselves. This is not going to hurt, even though we knew it was going to hurt. We have this amazing skill, and the ability, we do this with God. We have this amazing ability to slowly convince ourselves of something we know is not true just because we kind of want it to be. And we do this with the character of God. He's kind of like, you know, we convince ourselves, he's like Santa or like a nice old grandpa. We convince ourselves that he's safe. But as you read the Bible, that's not who he is at all. C.S. Lewis in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, Heaven, right? You know that book? Yeah, because you listen to it every night when you go to sleep. <laughs> She's rolled her eyes at me. Yeah, that's what she does. Uh, there's a great spot in there. C.S. Lewis says this, right? Or the, they're having a conversation. Aslan um, is a lion. He's the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. This is Mr. Beaver talking. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's like, that's such a great way. C.S. Lewis, you know, the master of words, right? This is a great way he put this, right? Is he safe? No, of course he's not safe. This is what we've done to God. We've kind of convinced ourselves, well, God is safe. And so what I want to do today, if you flip wherever in your booklets here, um, I have a bunch of these. We're going to go through and we're going to just ask ourselves this question. Who is God? We'll start with this. God is the creator, right? I have a bunch of these in here. We're going to go through these. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, right? You guys, most of you probably know this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You ever thought about how the Bible doesn't start with, did you know that there's a God? Right? What does it start with? In the beginning, God. Like, it just assumes the fact of God. Right? And what does it say about him? Well, at first there was nothing, and that just God the Trinity was. This being, this God being, is all that there was anywhere. No universe, no time, no anything. Just God. And then what did he do? He created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation is kind of a weird idea and a weird word. Because for us, we can create things. But when we create things, all we're doing is we're moving matter around. You know, um, when you paint, you're, you're creating with paint. When you're sculpting, you're molding clay. Even music is just figuring out how to move air, right? That's what we're doing. We're just moving air so that it hits your ears. But we didn't create the air when we played these songs earlier. I just strummed a guitar and it moved some air, right? We don't create, create. God, creation, for God, creation is literal. It's creating out of nothing. Try and wrap your mind about a being like this. This is the first sentence of the Bible. This is who he is. In the beginning, God, he just created the heavens and the earth. Even like, um, you know, I love Star Trek. That's one of my tattoos. I have the Enterprise tattoo. I, love, I was watching Star Trek last night at 1 in the morning. That's why I'm so tired. Anyway, in Star Trek, they have these things called replicators. You walk up and you say, hey, replicator, fix me a ham sandwich, you know, and then a ham sandwich pops out. But even that, in the sci-fi world, the best thing that we can come up with, the way the replicator is supposed to work is it repurposes matter to become a ham sandwich. There's no, even in our scientific, like sci-fi world, we don't even imagine a being who can just go, here is matter from nothing. And this is what the Bible says. This is what God did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He just spoke. And all of a sudden, there were stars. And this is a great exercise to do at least, I don't know, three, four times a day. Not really. Uh, you go on YouTube. 
Have you heard of it? It's a website. And um, you go on YouTube and you find one of those videos that starts with the Earth. You know, there's like a view of the Earth that are, you know, animated videos. But then it gives you the scope of the universe and the camera pans out. And you can see the Earth gets smaller and smaller. And then there's the moon and then Mars, you know, and it works its way back out of the solar system. And you think, wow, the solar system is huge. And then it pans back out from the solar system into the Milky Way. And then you're like, well, the Milky Way is huge. I thought the solar system was big. And then there's like, what, trillions of galaxies. And then it starts panning out and panning out. And you just get this sense of the vastness of the universe. And the way that the Bible opens up is one day God was like, hey, there should be a universe. And then there was. That is a crazy amount of power. And that's the first thing that we learn about God. And if that's true, if God really is that kind of a creator, that means he is a being and a whole class of his own. That's what we see in our next idea here. God is not beneath us. Later on, we read, we're just kind of bouncing around the Old Testament, mostly the Old Testament today. Um, There's a guy, his name was Job. He was this rich guy. He had a bunch of kids. He had the sweet life, right? And then we get a behind-the-scenes picture of what happened to Job. One day, Satan goes up to Job. I'm paraphrasing here, right? Satan goes up to God, I mean, and says, hey, I bet if I mess with that guy Job, he would curse your name. And God goes, no, he wouldn't. And then they make a little bet, and then Job... Uh, Satan starts messing with Job, right? His family dies, he gets sick, he gets boils all over his whole head. The whole book of Job, the way it works is he has these three friends. And these three friends show up and do what friends always do. They give him the worst advice of all time. And they start arguing about the way that justice works and the way that God works. And So the whole book is these back and forth for 30-something chapters, right? These guys are arguing. And then Job is really kind of all over the place as you read the book. He's not like, it's a very real book in the way that it portrays suffering and all this. And Job's question, though, is why am I suffering? If I'm a good guy, why is God doing this to me? Or why is God letting this happen to me? And so then at the end of the book, though, God shows up. And it's really interesting what happens. God doesn't show up and tell him, hey, Job, I have this massive plan And part of that massive plan is for me, like we do learn later, right? He works out all things for good. He doesn't say that to Job. This is what he says to Job in verse 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. He shows up in a storm, this terrifying terrifying storm, and he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So God shows up, and this is his answer. Who do you think you are? Didn't I make you out of nothing? And then he says right here, uh, you know, you have no knowledge. Verse 3, dress for action like a man. The, the, the rough paraphrased translation is that is put your cup on because we're about to fight. Right? You better, you know, you better get ready because I'm about to throw down. And this is Job's response. That's all God says to him. He never tells him why. He says, how dare you? And then Job's answer is in verse uh, chapter 40. Job answered the Lord, and he said, Behold, I'm a man of small account. What should I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I cover my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. Job hears from God when God says, Who do you think you are? And Job goes, Whoa, my bad. You're right. I was way out of line. Have you ever done this with a boss or something, where you spoke out of line? Um, the, what's that guy? Uh, Conan O'Brien, um, you know, the talk show host. Uh, he, has a, he has an assistant. I forget her name. And uh, she's kind of funny. She's been on the show and stuff. And I heard her in an interview say once that she almost got fired for this. 
that her and Conan got very familiar, and once in a meeting, she like stepped way over the line and was making fun of him in front of a bunch of you know. And she kind of explained this. This is what happens with Job. He steps way over the line, and when he realizes it, he steps back. He says, "I will cover my mouth." He looks at the magnificence of God, and he says, "My bad. I, I had no idea." That's what he says to God. Keep going. We have more of these stories, right? We have. You guys know the story of the burning bush, Charlton Heston, the whole thing, right? So. Moses uh, is, you know, tending some sheep after the whole leaving Egypt thing. And he sees this bush, and it's on fire, but it's not on fire. And he goes up, and um, all of a sudden, God says, hey, buddy. I'm, this is all paraphrasing, by the way. This is the new John version. Uh, he says, hey, buddy, you are on holy ground. You better take your shoes off. So Moses takes his shoes off. And they have this whole conversation where God tells him, look, I'm going to send you to Egypt uh, to talk to Pharaoh and to have my people be set free. Moses spends the entire what's it, like chapter and a half trying to get out of it. I can't do it. This, you know, I can't do that. And one of his excuses that God is not buying is he says to him, well, who am I going to say sent me? I don't know your name. You're just a bush that's talking to me. Right? It's a bush on fire. I'm very confused here. And the answer that God gives, he tells him in uh, Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. You see, here's the thing. Everything in the entire world is dependent on something else for its existence. Every, you know, there's a, a, a chain, right? It goes back and back and back. And everything is part of that chain. It was caused by something else, right? You're here because of your parents. I don't know, this is a PG-13 Bible study, but you're here because your parents had a box of wine. No, we're not going to get into it. But you're here because your parents, they're here because of their parents, and it goes back and back and back. Everything goes back and back. There's always a cause to everything. And then God says, I'm the back end of all those causes. I am existence. That's his answer for, to who are you. His answer is, I am the one who is existence. Right? Like Aristotle talked about this. He called it the prime mover. Right? In that cause of a chain, you know, the, the chain of cause and effect. Something, either the, the universe has to be eternal which science has now told us it's definitely not eternal, right? We have the whole Big Bang and everything. So either it's eternal and that chain goes back forever, or at some point in that chain, there's the, the wall, right? The first part that everything has to go back to. And this is what God, this is how he describes himself. This, this creator God, he says, look, dude, I am. I am the one who has always existed. So then Moses goes, heads out to Egypt, and the, the, we don't, I'm not going to get into every one of these. Maybe someday when Drew or Chris or I will teach the Exodus, I don't know, uh, we'll get into this. But as you read Exodus and the plagues, right, there's the, the frogs, right, and the locusts and the Nile turning to, there's all these things. And it just seems kind of random, right? But for the people in Egypt, every one of those was specifically a dig at one of their gods, right? So they had a god with the head of a frog. They, had, they worshiped the Nile. The ultimate god was Pharaoh, right? He was supposed to be a deified king. And so the last plague is a knock at Pharaoh. You know, I'm going to take your firstborn son. And so right after God tells Moses, I am existence, the next thing we see him do is go, and I am the only one, by the way. There's not a lot of us. There's not a pantheon of gods who are all competing to be the ultimate god. He throws the hammer down. He says, these guys all think that they're a god. They think, you know, Pharaoh thinks he's a god. He's not, right? He's part of the creation, and so God just one by one knocks the pins down, knocks down one of their gods, one of their gods, until eventually the people get let go. And then they leave Egypt, and they camp at Sinai. 
And they go out, and they're out there. And God gives them the Ten Commandments at the beginning of chapter 20. The end of chapter 20 is this weird section that not a lot of people talk about when we talk about the Ten Commandments passage. Look at this. Now when all the people, so it's after the Ten Commandments were given and all that. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. So they're, they're out at Sinai and they're at the base of the mountain. And on top of the mountain is this horrible storm and lightning and um, all of these people are just absolutely terrified. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that you may fear him, uh, that, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. And the people stood far off. Then Moses drew near to the thick of the darkness where God was. So we have this vast people group, right? This big group of, of Israelites. And they're sitting at the base of the mountain. And all this stuff is happening on the mountain. And the idea is God's supposed to come down and be a part of their, you know, be a part of this group. He's going to come be among them. And as it starts to happen, the people freak out. No, I can't. I don't want this God anywhere near me. They're terrified. And so what they say is, we need somebody else to deal with this God on our behalf. That's how terrified they were. Have you ever thought about that? Boy, you know, I really wish I could see God. These guys got to, kind of, you know. Not exactly, but they got to. They saw the lightning and the thunder. And what did they do? They ran away. And they said, we need somebody to be the go-between. Um, I was actually a youth pastor for a long time in the church that's hosting us tonight, uh, DPC. I worked here for a lot of years as a pastor, youth pastor. I was a janitor at one point. Anyway, we would go on these camping trips with the youth group kids up in Tahoe. And I would bring my friend Eric Kreiser. Some of you guys know Eric. And Eric's a big manly man who goes and he hikes outside and he sleeps on the ground. And, you know, I don't know. He's one of those guys that always has a knife. You know the kind of guy I'm talking about? You're just like, man, I need a knife. And he's like, oh, yeah. You know, he's got this big old thing on his Anyway, so this is the kind of guy. And I would always bring him. And this is why I would bring him. Because one year, I was sitting in a campfire with a bunch of these kids. And a bear came out of the bushes and sat at the campfire with us. And I'm from San Francisco. I don't know how to drive in snow or do things outside or deal with bears, especially. right? And so I was like, what I need is I need a bear dealer with her. right? I need a guy that I can knock over and then get all the youth group kids in the van. And he can go deal with the bear. And that was Eric Kreiser. Because bears are terrifying. You ever seen one in the wild? Mm -mm, it's no fun, right? i seen The Revenant. I know what those bears can do. right? And that's what I thought was going to happen, even though that movie hadn't come out yet. I had all these pictures in my mind. This is what the people do. They're terrified. They're more scared of this god than I was of that bear. And they say, we need a bear go-getter guy to go between us and the bear. Right? So this god is... You know, the, what's this, Jesus is my friend, and, you know, the whole, like, the kind of evangelical God that is, you know, Santa Claus, basically, the grandpa in the sky. Is that what we read here? It's not. They see God, and they say, nope, I'm too scared. We need somebody to do this for us. And part of the reason is the purity, the holiness of God. The next one is they get out into the desert, and look at Moses. Uh... He says to God, please show me your glory. So God, he says that to God. I want to see your face, right? And he says, look, I'll make my graciousness pass before you. I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. But he said, this is God said, you can't see my face for man shall not see my face and live. God says, look, I'm so holy that if you go anywhere near me, you're going to die to Moses. And then the Lord said, but behold, there's a place 
There's a place by me where you should stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand. You'll see my back, but my face should not be seen. We don't have time to get into all exactly what that means. But basically, Moses says, Lord, I want to see your face. He had this longing for Eden, right? This, I want to be with the presence, of the very presence of God. And God says to him, look, here's the deal. I get that you want that. Sorry, little buddy. If I did that to you, it would kill you. And I don't think that's what you want. Because you are so stained with sin, and I'm so pure, and I'm so holy, that these two things, right now, they can't, we can't have this kind of relationship where you can just see my face. So he puts him and he passes by. He covers him with his hand and he passes by. And it's actually interesting in the very next chapter, in chapter 34, is it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Moses spends so much time with God, his face starts glowing. You know, like a light bright kind of, like he's, or no, what are those glow worms from the 80s? Anybody remember these old? Anyway. So his face is glowing and it's freaking everybody out. So they make him cover his face with a veil. So he got to kind of see God, but then not really because he can't go anywhere near him. And this is who God is, right? He's this glorious, magnificent, pure, perfect, holy God. And if you read the Psalms, right, as you go through the Psalms, this is all over the place. I wanted to pick a Psalm, and the problem was I, like, listed 13 or 14 that I could have used for this. And I kept having to scratch them and cut them. Look at this Psalm that I printed. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but... Look at what he says, like, ascribe to the Lord in verse 2, the glory do his name. Worship the Lord uh, in the splendor of holiness, right? He's saying, give the Lord glory, which means, like, weight, importance. Give him the importance that he's due. Worship him. That's a big deal, that this God is worthy of our worship. Him, that's it. He's the only one that we get to worship. We don't worship anything or anybody else. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. This is a society terrified of the ocean. And they're saying, God is the Lord of the ocean, and uh, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Right? So think of Mount Sinai again. Think of creation, all this stuff. He's using, the psalmist is using these uh, images. Right? Nature was really scary to these folks. And guess what? Nature still is scary. We pretend like it's not until we're sitting at a campsite and a bear walks by. And then all of a sudden we remember how scary nature can be. Right, and this is the Lord. Look at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Right, so this creator God, he is the king above all other kings. All other kings have limited power and a limited reign. They don't reign forever. But this God, this king, he has unlimited power. He reigns forever. And seeing the king on his throne is no small matter, right? Being near the king on his throne, like Isaiah had this vision where he got to see the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6, which is one of my favorite verses or chapters of the Bible. And um, look at this in 6. I'll read some of this. In uh, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the, the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each of them had six wings. With two. So he describes these creatures, and they're calling out in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the foundations of the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, an unclean, uh, in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What that actually says is, where he says, woe to me, for I am lost, is that I'm coming apart from the inside out. I'm literally, I'm falling apart. 
he sees this vision of the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah, who seems like a pretty good dude, if you ask me, if you read the book of Isaiah, he seems like a pretty great guy. He says he's so perfect and so majestic that I just, I fell apart. It's like if you've ever seen a video or something on, I don't know, YouTube or TikTok or whatever, I don't know, of somebody who, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, somebody meets a celebrity that they love, and they go up and they try to say hi to him, and they, nothing comes out, and they're just completely baffled. This is what's going on times a billion, right? Isaiah sees God. He comes apart from the inside out because of who God is. He sees, he basically looks at God, and his first thought, I think, is, I thought I knew, but I had no idea. I had this picture in my mind of who God was. And when I really got to see him, it was terrifying. Because he's powerful, because he's holy. We see this in a bunch of some of these other stories, right? I'm not going to get into all these that I listed here, but um, there's a story where uh, the Syrians are threatening the people of God. And then God sends an angel in Second Kings here. You know, Hezekiah prays. And God sends, it says, that night there was an angel of the Lord. So they're sieging the city of Jerusalem. Um, he went out and he struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Right? This is just one dude that God created. Shows up and kills 185,000 soldiers. That's an insane amount of power. That's not even God. That's just like one of his henchmen. It's, just, it's hard to wrap our minds around how powerful this God is and how in control he is. That's the book of Habakkuk. This prophet, he goes to God and he says, Boy, I'm looking at these people and they're pretty terrible. God, are you going to do something about this? Or are you just going to let these guys run amok? And, you know, um, are you just going to let them, uh, you know, make your name not great in, among the nations? And God goes, Oh, I'm going to do something, but you're not going to like it. And he goes, Habakkuk goes, No, tell me, I'll be cool. Again, this is the new John version. And then God goes, okay, you know the Babylonians? And Habakkuk goes, yeah, those guys are terrible. God goes, I'm going to send them to destroy the people and to burn my temple to the ground. And Habakkuk goes, ooh, I wish you hadn't told me that. And that's, then that's the end of the book of Habakkuk. <laughs> right? The end. Let's all go home. No. So what God is saying is even in these terrible things, and you read about the exile and all that and the rest of the book of second, at the end of the book of Second Kings, um, you read about the exile and the destruction of the temple and Lamentations and those books, Jeremiah, and you think, boy, this is really terrible what's happened here. But if you know the book of Habakkuk, God goes, yeah, I know, but I am sovereign. I'm in control. Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't do stuff without me. right? And so I'm weaving together this whole thing because I am absolutely powerful. That's the kind of power that only the king can have. I want to jump to the last one here. I want to jump all the way to the end of the Bible, right? In Revelation 4, which is my favorite chapter, two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 4 and 5. That's why the tattoo I just got, the lion and a lamb. It's right here on my arm um, from this part. But I'm not going to read this whole thing right here. But basically, in Revelation 4, um, John has a very similar vision to what Isaiah has in Isaiah 6. And Ezekiel, and I didn't get into that because we're about to teach Ezekiel at the porch, um, but these two guys have very similar visions. And they see uh, God, you know, in his throne room. Or he sees God in his throne room, um, surrounded by these creatures. And uh, these creatures are calling out, that in verse 8, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The idea here is, first, John describes these creatures. And they seem pretty terrifying. Ezekiel does a similar thing. And you think, boy, these are really scary. And then all of a sudden, 
you see that these guys are worshiping the Lord. And you go, these guys are terrifying, but they're worshiping the Lord, which means he must be even bigger and more awesome. Um, it's like a scene from, the, I don't want to say the greatest movie of all time, but it's up there. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom of the Menace, you know, okay, Phantom Menace, right? It has the pod racing, come on, guys. Anyway, so, yeah, and Corey's leaving. Um, there's a scene in there, though, where I think they're going through the core of some planet, two of these Jedi. They're, like, underwater, you know, trying to go through the planet or something, I don't remember. And there's this big fish monster thing chasing them, and you're supposed to be really afraid of this thing. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one that's, like, 20 times bigger comes and eats that one. And then now you're supposed to be afraid of that second one. That's what John does here. He stole it from George Lucas, I'm pretty sure. Um, is you're supposed to read this and be awestruck by these angels, these angelic beings. And then you read and it goes, oh, but these guys are worshiping the Lord. How much greater must God be that the thing that scares me is worshiped by them? And so hopefully you can see this, this picture here that the Bible paints of who God is. He's the creator of everything. He is not beneath us. He's the real God. He is existence. I am. Right? He's glorious. He's holy. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's the transcendent king. Right? He's not a part of our universe. This God is really something else. This is a massive God. And so what I'd like for you to do is to take, what I'd like for us to do is to take all of that biblical truth about who God is and how scary he is and how Isaiah sees him and falls apart from the inside out. And now let's think about Christmas. John 1.14. With that background of all that we read in the Old Testament, all of a sudden this verse is insane. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's like the scene from, I only had two uh, VHS tapes when I was a kid, you know, we just watched them one back to back. One was Ben Hur. You remember that movie? From, okay, so we had Ben Hur as a two tape set. Uh, and then the other one was Aladdin. It's the only Disney movie I know. And I know the whole thing front to back. And there's a part where the genie is talking. And he says, It's all part and parcel of the whole genie gig, right? Phenomenal. Co- this is Robin Williams. Pretend this is Robin Williams, right? Phenomenal cosmic powers, itty bitty living space. Right? This is what we see with the incarnation of Jesus. This is what we're dealing with. But not genie powers where he's limited. All-powerful, big, terrifying, fear-of-the-Lord kind of God. Itty-bitty living space. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God enters into his creation. We don't have time to get into the whole what is the Logos thing from John. You know, I don't know, someday we'll get into that. You know. But the Word meaning Jesus. Jesus became flesh. It's interesting, I was reading about it this week, or last week actually. Uh, John doesn't say he became a man. I never thought about this. He he became a man, or he entered a body. That's not what he says. He uses the almost crude term, he became flesh. The ancients, right, especially the Greeks, had a lot of stories about God, about the gods, who would take on like the appearance of a human, you know, and they would go and pregnant some lady and then go back to being God or whatever, you know, being Zeus or whatever. Um, They had a lot of those kind of stories. But what John is specifically saying is that's not what's going on here. He didn't appear as a human, right? He he became, he took on human flesh. God became one of us and he dwelt among us, right? The tabernacle in the Old Testament was the place where during the the Exodus and all that, God specifically said, this is where my presence is going to be, right in the midst of the people. And so John kind of uses that same word here. He says, he tabernacled among us. That's the idea. 
His presence that was in the tabernacle, that was in the temple, that presence is in the Word of God, in the, the Messiah. He set up his tent right in the middle of his people. And we've seen his glory. So to look at Jesus is to look at the Father. Right? He even goes through this with his disciples one time. They're like, hey, dude, show us the Father. Jesus goes, uh, I'm here, you know, I'm right here. You look at me, you see the Father. Again, New John Version, we're paraphrasing. Um, you look at me, you've seen the Father, right? That's what's going on. And so we have this big, giant, scary, holy, perfect creator God. And then we have this little baby, completely helpless. J.I. Packer put it this way, God became a man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. There was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as uh, is this truth of the Incarnation. That that big God that made Isaiah come apart from the inside out, that scared the people on Mount Sinai, laid in a crib, and then Mary changed his diapers. So let's stop then and ask, why? That's a really crazy story. So why, why, is this, why did this happen? Was God, was it a magic trick? Was he just putting on a good show? Was he acting like a tourist? Let's go see what these humans are up to. No, there was one big reason for the incarnation. And it was this. Because you can't nail a spirit to the cross. That was the reason for the incarnation. Because you can crucify flesh. Right? The incarnation, Jesus, what we celebrate on Christmas, that Jesus became one of us, made our salvation possible. Because this God didn't stay a baby. He grew up as a real, actual human. He had brothers and sisters. He did his chores. Uh, he had friends. He learned the scripture. He had to learn how to read, to talk. He had to learn the alphabet. He had to learn how to write, all that stuff. Right? Luke tells us that he had to learn the Bible. He, it wasn't like... You know, his first words were all of Isaiah chapter 40 or something, right? He had to sit there and memorize it, and he had to learn it. And he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that empowers his people now. And he grew up, and what he did was he lived, this man, he lived a perfect life. The only sinless, perfect life. And so constantly he was tempted with sin, but unlike us, he overcame. And then he took his very real human body... And he walked over to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, and he waited for the mob to come and get him. And in his very real human body, God was nailed to a Roman cross. And God became a bloody mess. And he struggled with air. He struggled for air in his very human lungs. He felt the pain as his very human nerve sent real signals to his brain. His veins were opened, and blood was spilled. And then eventually, breath left his body, and God died. Why? He took on the wrath of God. He took on the punishment for sin, so that then we could get credit for his perfect life. And so my point today is very simple. It's this. Look at him. Look at who he is, and look at what he's done for you. The birth of Jesus is not a cute little story. Right? It's not a nice little story. It's the most glorious, massive, 
story. It's about this God, this unimaginably holy God who became one of us so that he could be nailed to the cross. And this is what Paul's getting at in Philippians that Carol read. Right? Being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. I think that the first thing that you're going to think when you close your eyes in death, it's going to happen at some point. Right? I always joke, but it's a serious joke, right? That the numbers on death are staggering. One out of one people die. You know, it's going to happen, right? It's coming for us. And at some point, for us who are followers of Jesus, who are children of God, we're going to close our eyes and we're going to open them. And I think the very first thing we're going to think is kind of what Isaiah thought. Boy, I had no idea. I thought I knew. I thought I read my Bible. But just the, there's no way to get that sense in this life. Like, I just, I had no idea. That feeling of awe then is never going to go away. And for billions of years in your resurrected body, you're going to learn more and more, and you're going to understand more and more about how big God is and that how amazing the incarnation really, really was and how amazing the death and resurrection of Jesus was. And we're constantly going to sit down with each other and we're going to have coffee and we're going to say to each other after a billion years, boy, I thought after 900 million years I had a pretty good grasp of this. But these last 100 million years, boy, I've really learned some stuff about Jesus. I have really come to understand even better the idea of the incarnation. And we're just going to do this forever. And we are never going to get to the bottom of the ocean of the character of God, of who he is and how amazing this is. So what I want to leave you with then is just two practical things I want you to think about and do as in this, you know, I mean, Christmas season is over and like, you know, well, when I finish here in a minute, but, uh, <laughs> Um, you know, as you, as you go into the new year, all this, I want you to just think about this. The first thing I want you to do is worship. Just be a person of worship. The more that you think about that, the more you're going to be a worshipful person. Philippians 2, the rest of that passage there. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first thing we should take away from this is we think about this big God who became little for us. We should think about it and we should be, we should fall down and we should worship. But at the same time, we don't want to just be the people that come together and sit in church together and worship and that's all we do. Right? The more that you worship, the more that this transforms you into a kingdom kind of person. Look at the context of this passage, this great passage about Jesus humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. This is the beginning. Jump back to verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and then he goes on, right? But it starts with this. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. And I think Paul wrote that. And then he stopped for a second. Or, you know, he had people write this down for him, you know. But he stopped for a second. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And he looked at that and he went, mm, that's not me. And I met these Philippians. It's not really them either. How can, they, how can they live this out? This impossible calling to be a selfless, loving, outward-facing purpose um, person. And then he goes, oh, I know. The more that they think about Jesus, the more that that's just going to happen. So then he goes off on this huge tirade about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And he goes, the more that they think about that, 
the more they're going to end up looking like him. And that's exactly how the kingdom works. You don't look like Jesus to earn your way into the kingdom. He brings you into the kingdom through his death and resurrection, and he says, now look at me, worship, and be transformed. And so every week, Chris and Drew and I, we stand up at the three churches, and we say, this is who Jesus is. Look at him. Look at Jesus and be transformed. And slowly, bit by bit, as we gather together and do that, we are transformed into the loving kind of people that we're supposed to be. And so, like, when I first started writing this sermon, um, I was, you know, I, I was thinking, boy, how deep theological incarnation stuff we can get. And then I threw all that in the garbage. <laughs> and I started over. Because what I wanted to do was just this idea of look at him. Right? B.B. Warfield, a lot of you guys know him, said this. The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze... Not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man. One who is all that God is, and at the same time, he's all that man is. One one on whose almighty arms we can rest, and to whose sympathy, human sympathy, we can appeal. And that's what he said. I I just love that phrase that B.B. Warfield used. It presents to our adoring gaze these beautiful truths about who God is. And so that's my goal here today with the Christmas sermon, right? Is look at him. This giant God became one of us, right? Look. This God, man, he lived a perfect life. He died in your place. Look at it. The God, man, was crucified and resurrected the same way that you're hopefully going to be. Look at it. This God, man, now he sits at the right hand of God and he tells us he's coming back. Look and worship. And as you look and as this truth enters your life just a little bit deeper... Be transformed by his Holy Spirit. And don't leave here the same way that you walked in these doors. Amen? Let's pray. So God, we thank you that your scriptures tell this beautiful, wonderful story. We thank you that that you have revealed all these very complex and nuanced ideas about who you are. We, We confess, Lord, that a lot of times we try to, you know, pin you down and make you a little bit less scary and to try to make you a little bit less awesome. So we we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for that. And the more that we understand the truth of how holy and perfect you are and how big and powerful and sovereign, we take that and look at the incarnation, Lord, help us to just have a better picture of who Jesus is and how humble he was and how loving he was, and how wonderful it was that he became one of us so that he could die for us. Help this to be the, just like the, the dominant principle in all of our lives. This idea, help us, this idea to just never leave our minds that you really are a wonderful Savior, and you've reached down, and you've scooped us up, and you've made us part of your family. And so we gather here today, Lord, just sort of to worship you, but also just practicing for eternity. When we are going to, you know, get into the new heavens and the new earth with our resurrected bodies, and we are going to spend eternity learning about you and worshiping you. And with those angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we, we thank you for who you are. We love you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen.